oh, you're the only woman here. Huh? Look at that. How funny. We all know there's a problem. We're tired of talking about the problem. What I'm really working on now is not just having women involved. We have to have everyone involved, all genders. And this is not a woman problem what's going on with the lack of equity in the world and in science in particular. This is a people problem. That was Joanne Caymans, our first guest of our new series, Wonder Women in Science and Engineering. So this might be very obvious to you that we're trying to address a very prevalent issue in science through this new series that both Mehdi and I hold dear to our hearts. Absolutely. Shen, for example, you have been involved in a number of women in STEM activities throughout your education so far, and you continue to advocate for your peers in science and engineering. And Mehdi, you've been a tremendous mentor for budding uh, women scientists like me, encouraging and pushing us to be our best, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much and for your kind words. I'm so lucky to be surrounded with women in my life as well as my career, and I believe it's very important to be surrounded with a strong woman who challenge you, lift you up, think differently than you, as well as encourage you to try new things. And I believe Science Rehashed is a good example of this notion. We both started this podcast almost last year, this time with an only an idea. And right now, 10 members of 13 are rising young, powerful stars who happen to be women. And they challenge us every day. And I couldn't be happier to be working with such amazing, amazing group of women. And I think that's why with the launch of our new series, we aim to celebrate women role models in science and engineering whose stories can inspire not only us, but everyone, make us all question our own biases, empower other women, as well as illuminate ways in which the workplaces can foster diversity, equality, and inclusivity at all levels. I can't wait to have the discussion with our first guest today and also the upcoming episode with the new series of Science Rehashed. There are plenty of data about the lack of women role models in STEM fields. And interestingly, throughout the years, society has really conditioned us. It has normalized our inherent biases towards women in STEM. And we're often not aware of them. Joanne, by joining us today, you're starting to be a part of the solution. Dr. Joanne Caymans is the CEO of AdGene, a nonprofit company that helps scientists all over the globe to exchange genetic material from their laboratories to facilitate scientific progress. She is a founder of the Massachusetts chapter of AWISE, serves on the advisory board of numerous organizations for better diversity and workplace inclusivity, and is an award-winning mentor and public speaker for women and minorities in STEM. I'm Shen Ning. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi. And we are your hosts for Science Rehashed. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of Wonder Women in Science and Engineering, Joanne. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Can you briefly tell us about your journey from your early interests in science until now as the CEO of AtGene? 
So I grew up in Minnesota and graduated high school in St. Louis Park, was interested in science from a very early age. So I have a picture, it's like my social media picture of me holding my first microscope when I was nine, because a Hanukkah present. So I, I think I was pretty geeky pretty early. And that was a little shocking for my parents. My dad is a rabbi. He's a retired conservative rabbi. So they didn't know much what to do with my affinity for science and math. But like all Jewish parents, they were very excited about it. I was meant to become a medical doctor because that's what nice Jewish girls are supposed to do when they're good at science and math. Um, of course. And, and other cultures as well. Of course. Um, But uh, within about six months in college, I went to University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, which is where my parents grew up. So I had a lot of family there. It was a great experience. I love Philadelphia, love Penn. Within six months, I knew I was pre-science and not pre-med. I didn't even know pre-science was a thing until I got to college. I was the only person in my high school, one or two people that didn't go to University of Minnesota or University of Wisconsin. Like only girl in any of my math classes kind of if you think about a different time, there wasn't the pipeline then. Now there is a pipeline. There wasn't back then. And then I went straight to grad school and I chose to go to Harvard Medical School, the Division of Medical Sciences, because there was a vast choice of labs that you could do your work in. And I spent six years there doing yeast genetics, studying a little unknown oncogene at the time called REL and showing that it was a transcription factor. And about four and a half years into my thesis, NF-kappa B was cloned, for those of you that know the field of transcription factors, and all of a sudden my quiet little oncogene was the member of a super family and highly competitive science. So my advisor was fantastic. He said, ooh, write your thesis, get out of here. Um, (laughs) And so um, that's what I did. Um, I also had a baby. I, I defended my thesis when I was six months pregnant. I had my first child in grad school, which I, I highly advocate. Was worked very well for us. And then I knew that I was not cut out for academia. I had a great advisor. He knew also that that was probably not the right path for me. And he helped me get my first job in pharma which was a direct jump uh, bench job pharma doing bench research at a company called BASF. BASF got bought by Abbott, but I stayed in the same company for about 15 years doing drug discovery and immunology. Really enjoyed it. Learned a huge amount. Basically got a second degree in immunology. It was a fabulous learning experience and ended up there at, at Abbott, it's now AbV, but wasn't then, as the group leader in molecular biology for immunology. And that meant I managed a cloning, sequencing, virus, RNAi core facility, and also had a couple PIs to do basic discovery work for new project promotion and and starting new projects. And after about 15 years there, I went to for-profit biotech, worked at a company called RxI Pharmaceuticals, an RNAi startup that uh, Craig Mello was one of the founders there. And it was very exciting time. Uh, Love biotech is just so fast and fun. It was a little draining, but exciting. Mm -hmm. And then as with uh, many biotechs, the research team was laid off when the drug went into development. And that's when I started at Agene, which is about nine years ago now. Agene is a nonprofit. And I've done a lot of nonprofit work about what we're going to talk about today, mostly for diverse women in diversity and science and other types of diversity. But getting paid to do nonprofit work is sort of a dream job for me. I've loved all of my jobs, different types of careers, but I really love being in nonprofit. And Agene is a nonprofit that helps scientists share research materials internationally. And I'm the executive director, which is like the CEO of a nonprofit. 
And I work with 100 fantastic ad genies making a difference in the world. You have been at leadership position throughout your career in science, and then you voluntarily initiated the mass chapter of Association for Women in Science. I would like to know what motivates you to take up these roles. So I would say for me, part of it is just the confidence. And, you know, we always talk about imposter syndrome for women, but everybody has imposter syndrome. You know, maybe men are just more bluster through it better. I don't know, but... We just but, don't show it. We <laughs> just don't show it. But, but women are always blamed, but I think we all have it. But through my passion and anger at the plight of women in science, you know, I founded the Massachusetts chapter of the Association for Women in Science back when I was at Abbott, MBASF. And that was literally had nothing to do with wanting to be a leader. That was literally just fury, just plain fury at why did all of my colleagues and classmates drop out of science, not all of them, but many drop out of science. That just seemed patently unfair to me. And so my diversity work really started at Abbott and that I did sort of out of passion. But in starting the chapter, that was really my first opportunity to have that traditional a leadership role. Now, leadership is really, in my opinion, is taking initiative. You cannot run a company and be a leader. You can be a, you know, a first-year grad student and be a leader. You know, taking that initiative to start something to make change. I think that's really. I couldn't see not doing this thing. I was so frustrated with the situation. The numbers were appalling. They're not much better now. It's terrifying, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so. And that, that gave me I sort of my first confidence. Being a leader is a little bit getting people to do things. And what I saw there was I could inspire people to work together and make change. And, and that was my first confidence. Like, I, I can lead things. I have to say, I had a dinner with a mentor and good friend of mine about four years before I took the job at Agene. And she said, you should be the CEO of a biotech. And I was like, that's never going to happen. I'm a scientist. <laughs> I don't want to be the CEO of anything. I don't even want that. And, and she said, I bet you dinner. And so you know, five years later, I had to call her and make good on that bet because not every job would have been right for me, but being the CEO of Agene was one I, I was prepared for. If you looked at the job description, I knew a lot about plasmids. I was a, I had practiced molecular biology. I'd cloned hundreds of plasmids. So I was very familiar with Agene's core business. I had a big network. I had managed people. I had managed groups of people. I knew about nonprofit work. So I had this sort of strange resume of qualifications that made me write for this particular position. And so I had to swallow a lot of imposter syndrome to apply. And every day, occasionally, <laughs> I have to say, no, you know, I don't know everything about this, but I have people who can help me. That's really how I've approached it. You're learning all the time. If you're not learning, you're bored. And that's true in a leadership role as well. I'm curious about um, when you first started the mass chapter of AYS, um, what was the reception like? So AWIS is the National Organization, Association for Women in Science, and they have a presence in Washington, and they're very involved in policy and government and like the advance grants and NIH and AAAS. And, you know, they're, I have a core advocacy. And then they have these chapters. And there had been a Massachusetts chapter, like in the 70s into the 80s, and it folded in the middle of the 80s. And you guys probably don't remember why. But that's when the courts upheld the decision to support Title IX. So that meant everything was going to be equal. We're all done here. Our work is done. The chapter literally disbanded intentionally. It said, we have Title IX. The laws are in place. We've accomplished our goal. And they moved on. So 
fast forward, you know, 10 years and clearly there's still a problem more than 10 years, probably. And so when I reached out to AWIS to say, how can there not be a Boston chapter? There are more women scientists in Boston than maybe anywhere in the world. They said, oh, well, a couple other people have been asking us about that. We don't know why either. And they gave me the list of members of the national organization who lived in Massachusetts. Think just like internet, nascent internet. Email is sketchy. There's no listservs, early days. And I mean, not that there wasn't internet. We had email, that's not fair, but people didn't use it the way, the way of working now. So I reached out to some 50 members and about 20 of them got back to me and we had a meeting in my living room. I think about 12, 13 people. Some of them are still active in the chapter, so I know who they are. Some of them later, later served as president, um, like Karen Yee and Rebecca Pitts and, and other people. So that was the core. And for a long time, it was just small meetings in classrooms, very grassroots, supporting one another. And then the need was so great that it grew pretty quickly. And then when social media tools became more available so we could advertise more widely, then things started to really take off. So now it's the biggest chapter in the country. We have a very active mentoring program, something I'm really proud of. It's helped hundreds of women gain confidence and skills for their science and tech careers. So what motivates you as a scientist, a mentor, and an advocate for women in science? Ad genies motivate me. They're so talented. We have such an incredible, talented, dedicated group of people. You know, working in nonprofit, Adgene has good benefits and we're all paid. It's not just for love, but people choose to be in nonprofit. We don't have stock options. You know, we don't have a, some other benefits of, of for-profit companies. So they're here because they care about making a difference in the world and working with people like that is is just fantastic. You know, externally, my volunteer work is often just rage, (laughs) just driven by rage. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of young women are faced suddenly with this, that harassing professor that or or more or worse damage and and come to me confidentially and the stories build. Um, I carry those stories individually and then cumulatively they raise a, a rage at the treatment of, of scientists who just want to do science. You know, it's just so patently wrong to me. And the stories of the how people cover it up and how they make excuses for it. You know, I was actually at a, I don't want to out anybody here, but I was at a fancy dinner after a, a big a launch of something and this sort of fancy leadership team was there and they were talking about I always forget his name. This this scientist that went to jail for sexually harassing his uh, a child of his postdoc. And at this table, people that had known this person were basically saying how what a good guy he was and how they were sending him journals in prison. And I said, "Do you know how hard it is to convict someone of child sexual assault? Do you know how hard? Do you realize that he's in jail because he probably did that thing?" You know, and they were like, I was at this fancy dinner. I I hated having to do it, but I couldn't stand it. Right. And to their credit, they kind of said, wow, I I never thought about it. And it was women, by the way, not just men. I never thought about it that way. And I'm like, we have to stop defending these people, you know? And so those are the bad people. On a day-to-day basis, most people are not a sexually assaulting or harassing women. You know, they're just like not fair. They're mm-hmm. just question their competence. They just, you know, make little cracks to make them uncomfortable because that's what they were raised with. But if every one of us stands up and says, hey, that converse, that comment made me a little uncomfortable. That was kind of a microaggression, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. then people will stop. 
What I'm really working on now is not just having women involved. We have to have everyone involved, all genders. And this is not a woman problem, what's going on with the lack of equity in the world and in science in particular. This is a people problem. Everybody misses out on talent if more than half of our scientists are not fairly being included. Because I say more than half because we're not only unfair about gender and, you know, we're not unfair about non-binary gender. We're not fair about race. We're not fair about age. You know, we're not fair about a whole bunch of things. So we are really limiting our talent pool <laughs> in a drastic <laughs> way. And so just from a business perspective, not from an ethical perspective, ethically, diversity is and inclusion is, is, is right. Um, but from a business perspective, it's important. Really, it's key. I'm very tired of being on panels where we talk about what the problems are. We all know the problems. We all know that it's women are underrepresented, underappreciated, and woe be it to you if you're a nested minority, which means you are a black woman or a black trans woman or have even a, you know, a black trans woman with a disability, <laughs> like forget it, you know. So you have to fight like 10 times, 100 times harder than someone else to really just do the science that you love and that you want to do. One of the things about having a baby in grad school, people immediately question whether you're serious about your science. Hmm. There hasn't been a day in my life I haven't been serious about my science, but I am a young woman who wants to have children. So no one said to my husband when I got <laughs> pregnant, you don't want to be a rocket scientist anymore? Are you done with that? But people did say to me, are you going to keep working? Even just the asking of it is is an insult, right? Right, and so you know, I was like, "What do you mean? Am I going to keep working? Of course, I'm going to keep working. I work. I'm a scientist. Like this is not does not negate my my talent, my intelligence, my learning, my education. But the minute you are physically manifesting a pregnancy, people question your seriousness about mm -hmm. everything else in your life. It's ridiculous, mm -hmm. right? So say to yourself, don't walk up to a pregnant person and say, "What are you going to do after?" Because that's not the question, you know, like they, people don't ask the non-birth parent that question. This is a very beautiful example which just resonates with one of my memories. When I came to the United States, one of my colleagues uh, shoot me an email later and said, oh, can you have a look in, into, into my, my cover letter? And I want to apply to Harvard and MIT and see if I have a chance. And she was a brilliant uh, graduate student back in Switzerland and she got pregnant and she took like a, a, an eight, six months to nine months. I don't remember correctly, just, just to want to be accurate. Six to nine months gap in her graduate school went take care of her baby and she came back. And she highlighted that in the cover. I said, maybe can you please uh, have a look on this center? Should I remove it? Should I keep it? Yeah. I had a, like a little bit longer PhD uh, program and I'm not sure how the people are going to take this. I'm going to be labeled as a non-serious scientist. Yep. I don't care about this. This is, this is a big deal for a yeah. lot of women. Yeah, It's a I big deal. And, and so the minute you think that in your head, please question that perception. It does not for a minute mean that, it doesn't mean that some women will not decide for their personal reasons because their partners perhaps can't carry their part of the load, have to take time at home. Of course, it's mostly the birth parent who does that. And that's mostly women. And so just to be you know careful of my language, but to me, if 50% of the time or even 60% of the time, it was the birth parent who took the step back from their career, that would be fair. But it's like 95% of the time. 
you know, and that's both perception and the, the fact that society doesn't accommodate it and the couples don't see it. So my husband and I, we just took turns advancing in our careers. You know, like if I needed to take a step back, he could do more at work. And if he needed to take a step back at home, I could do more at work, you know, depending on who, what stage we were at, what jobs we were doing. Juan, can you tell us about your efforts in advocating workplace inclusivity and diversity? Most of my initiatives now, um, aside from advising a number of groups like New England Graduate Women in Science and BUGYs, and I'm on a number of other advisory boards, are really about diversity in general and trying to work with companies to really kick off implicit bias awareness and more fair hiring practices and really to include people. HR is a much more important part of their organizations from the perspective of truly serving the people, not serving management. So, and then bringing visibility to marginalized scientists and groups. Um, so that kind of, that's the kind of work that I, of course, also I'm involved in Agene's diversity and inclusion initiatives and, and equity initiatives. And how do you ensure these inclusivity at Agene? Well, you know, the head of our, our CTO and the head of our IT and system operations are both women. Right there. That's because when we were interviewing, we were able to see that women could be candidates for jobs that are so traditionally men. That's just an example. Like, we can see past that. Another example, we have two people at our company who, are, who come to us hired through Best Buddies which is an organization in the country that helps people with different abilities and disabilities to be in the workplace and to function in the world. And, you know, we have some jobs that are somewhat repetitive and or it doesn't really matter your outward. If you can learn the skills, you can do the job. And so one of our employees, we've been five years, one has been one year, and they do an enormous amount of work and contribute greatly to Agene. They like their jobs and come every day and are dependable and are part of our family here. If everybody was like, well, we're not going to take a chance on someone with a disability because of this, then you're missing out on talent that is incredibly reliable and, and dedicated. I can give you another great story about bias, actually. We have someone in the company who has a hearing disability, who has reduced hearing, and we accidentally had her interview a summer candidate for an intern position who had come to us through the Mass Bio High School program. And mm -hmm. she had the courage to apply for a summer job last summer or two summers ago. And we had this person, we thought she might be a good helper for this other person, and we had that person do the interviews. And it turned out that this high school student had a cochlear implant and had a hearing disability. And we did not know that. But imagine what that interview was like when the both of them realized it, which they did, and could have this open conversation about what it was like in the workplace for someone here with a hearing dif difference. Wow, right? And she yeah. came and worked just because we didn't say, oh, that's going to be hard to accommodate for. We don't know. We were prepared to accommodate for that diversity. So those are some positive stories. I, I, we've had examples where people have come to me to suggest promotions and maybe the person they were suggesting to promote was a white male. And I thought the person who should be promoted was not a white male. And I made them come to me with a justification. And in the end, that wasn't who got promoted. And it was the right person. The right person was promoted. So those are just some examples. But it takes constant vigilance from leadership and engagement from everyone 
to really put these into place, I think. Yeah, I think here you touched upon a really great point about having a leadership who's both aware. And also, I think one of the biggest things is that visibility of having women leaders. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that um, for me, I'm, I'm a student, I'm a MD, PhD, and it's also a lot of males. And um, often we actually have some female candidates who come in and interview. And sometimes by, you know, kind of luck at the draw, the the students who show up for one of those luncheons is all male. And yeah. only one yeah. or two females show up. It's not necessarily because the school itself is um, biased, but because for that particular event, it looked as if it was. And so one yes. of the first questions I get, if I was one of the few women there is, you know, what's the gender difference here like? So I think, you know, most places don't have a good gender ratio yet. Okay, so I think that's where you really have to have leadership kick in and talk about what things they're doing, not just talking about it. So is there a women's support group? Are there male allies? Are the practices in place for fair hiring? Is there a diversity officer that's real check and balance on job descriptions and hiring? Are there mentoring groups? You know, another thing I've been asked to do a lot recently, I'm a big advocate for circle mentoring, for peer group mentoring, because I think... First of all, that support is really super important, but you may not have enough women that can mentor all the women. And also it's good to have women and men mentoring women and men. Yeah. So, you know, because people getting to know each other is how you break through biases, right? How do you get breakthrough biases when the person becomes a person and not a this or a that or a label? They're just a person to you, right? right. And that's one reason why organizations have to be out there supporting diversity organizations because they have to demonstrate with their money, their time, their effort that they really mean what they say when they're trying to make a change. So if you're not yet diverse, that's the only way you're going to prove it, that you're making a concerted effort with actual action in recruiting. Where are you recruiting from? Are you using firms that are diverse? Are you making sure your recruiting panels are, have multiple people? Are you reaching out to untapped sources of talent? Agene hires from a lot of organizations that are very diverse, community colleges, just to start in Cambridge, organizations that bring us diverse candidates on purpose. So let's talk a little bit about male advocates, because I've been really lucky to have had a lot of great male and female mentors, including Medi, uh, throughout my academic career so far. And that's been tremendously helpful and has really built my confidence over the years. So how can others, anyone who wants to be an advocate, contribute to this effort? It, I think it, it goes without saying, as the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement have really demonstrated, you can't just sit back and watch anymore. You have to be an anti-racist. You have to be an anti-sexist if you're going to be credible at this point. I can't tell you the number of times if you talk about the really bad apples in science, so the sexual harassers, I don't just mean the ones that look away, but the damage, they're few, and, but they're, they have a lot of impact. But the people who really have harassed women physically and verbally, they often harass other minorities, underrepresented groups as well, but the real damaging ones. I cannot tell you the number of times people have said to me, that can't really be true. He's such a nice guy. So not believing people that have been harassed and bullied is probably the biggest problem in science. We have shut them up. We have quieted them down. They don't, they can't say anything or their careers are at jeopardy. And there's a, everybody knows 
everybody knows which professors not to get alone in an elevator with, which professors not to have a drink with. We try to warn the young ones. Uh, In companies, it's also known, right? And for years, HR has been saying, work it out. It's just a misunderstanding. And that's what has to stop. We have to have men and women speaking out when they see these things and know about them. If you hear someone make a comment or you see that a woman is trying to speak and no one is allowing her to speak or someone else has her idea, which happens all the time, (laughs) we really need women and men to say, hey, just a minute. You know, we all need to be equitable here. That or that was that comment made me uncomfortable. I can't believe you really meant that. There's a nice way of doing it. Maybe it's not in the moment, but we really need those advocates because, frankly, if women speak up just themselves, they get no no progress. No one believes them. So I think male allies that really embrace that they're part of the solution can really make a difference. Again, this is not a a, a woman problem. This is a people problem. Joanne, earlier in our discussion. You mentioned that you work with a number of companies on implicit bias awareness. Can you a little bit explain it further? How can one be aware of these biases and consciously avoid those in our workplace and also in our life? I am doing these implicit bias workshops for companies and groups fairly frequently now. I'm kind of delighted that the world is like finally jumped on my bandwagon. I've been doing this for like 20 years and all like last week I got four calls about doing this at small companies. It's like more than I've gotten in a year. Unbiasing and I don't like to call them implicit bias workshops, because I don't want to teach people bias. We all have it. We don't need to learn it. But to become aware of our biases, own them, it's like owning your privilege and and owning your perspective takes an enormous amount of work. Um, Research has shown that if companies do bias awareness workshops and nothing else, it actually backfires. It makes people like kind of opt out of doing any work for inclusion. Oh, I've taken the training. I know about my biases and then they move on. So you have to be really careful that this is just to start the conversation. It's just the beginning of your work on Mm -hmm. making your employees aware. And now that you're aware of how we're all biased, here's all the things we're going to do to make sure that that we're questioning those. And there's a few things that have to happen. So what are the biases? We are literally physically innately born with a very quick response system. So the way the Google HR guy describes this in a famous video is he's like, you're in the tundra and the lion is coming at you and you don't pause and say, huh, it's feline. It has sharp teeth. And you know, it's a big mane. It looks angry. I think I might run. You know, you like in a half a second, you're running from the lion. Okay. So we literally, we save our lives. Now, another example of quick response, think about, I don't know if you drive, but if you're driving and you're drinking your coffee and the light is changing and someone with a mask on isn't watching and their headphones in and they're walking in front of you, you can do all that in a half a second without even realizing you've made a decision to put the brakes on. These responses, these quick responses, they save our lives. So they're super important. Okay. So one of the main things that we do in quick is we see things and we make judgments quickly. And one of the things humans have done through history, probably other animals as well, is if we see something that looks different, it's a little bit dangerous. It's different. And if we see something that looks the same as us, it's a little safer. And you may know it, I know it, and still it's infused in you. And and then it's reinforced by media and by commercials and by TV. You know, every man on TV is an incompetent parent, doesn't know how to change a diaper. If you see that enough times, you're going to start to think that. 
every car is driven by a large white male. You're going to think these cars are really mostly available to large white males. If you look at commercials, you start to become infused with the society that we've seen, Mm -hmm. such that when we see something that's not quite right, when there's a character that's a different color, we're surprised by it, actually, you know, in a way. That's what you're fighting against. It's not your fault. It's innate. It's like an innate thing to look for family. And so anybody else is an other and you're going to judge them. And then you're going to have stereotypes. And so what we try to teach in unbiasing is pause and think about it. And then you have to have someone monitoring that. So organizations really have to put very good practices in place during hiring and promotion and salary review in order to keep those things fair. I will tell you that if you are biased, you will not pick the right person for the job because you won't see them. You just won't see them as a candidate. And Agene has benefited hugely from us being extremely questioning about the profile of a person. We, we try not to profile because we have benefited hugely from hiring for diversity at this company. Mm-hmm. And some of our most successful employees are ones that maybe would have been overlooked elsewhere because mm-hmm. they're not the same as everyone else. You assume you are biased. I am biased. You are biased. We are all biased. We all have these preconceived notions. You assume it. So I assume it. So if I'm talking to someone and and I love to be surprised. So you make assumptions about people and question those assumptions, you know, and note the surprises, right? And it's not even with malicious intent, but the outcome of a thousand little malicious little biases is discrimination. So actually, we were having a book club for Aji in the other day, and I'm always learning my own language, correct language. And uh, we were doing Ta-Nehisi Coates's book on Between the World and Me. And in one of my comments, I used the words black slaves. And one of my colleagues corrected me and said, we don't say black slaves anymore. We say black people who were enslaved. You know, and I was like, thank you. You're Mm -hmm. right. It's not an identity we want to put on Black people. We want to understand that they are Black people and that they were unrighteously enslaved. So being able to call each other out, that's the culture you want to have so that we can all be learning together, um, you know, what the correct way of using language, because language is extremely important. I mean, come on, what do we call postdocs in this country? We call them postdoctoral fellows. Yeah, that's a boy word, right? Fellows yeah. are young men, right? <laughs> Fellows are young men. I never I mean, thought could, about that. Yeah. yeah, you could say postdoctoral scholar and then we'd be done with it, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't want to be a fellow of anything. I'm not a fellow. It's, and, and if you choose to be a fellow, that's fine. But we're certainly not all fellows who are postdocs, you know. Um, so language really built. I could give you a hundred examples like that. I do it myself sometimes. I'm writing and I realize I'm referring to something as a he instead of a they. And I don't want to do that. I don't want all the scientists to be he, the doctors to be he. So in Cambridge, there's a very active response squad when there are strange packages that arrive for a variety of reasons. <laughs> and we had a strange package arrive at Agene and we had to call the police to come and take a look at it. It turned out to be just some crazy thing, nothing bad, but but we, we followed protocol and we had the police come and they bring the fire truck and the guys suit up in the hazmat suits and they come in and it's quite a thing. And the police chief is outside and I'm standing outside with my facilities operator, who's a tall white guy at the time, who was a tall white guy at the time. And, you know, the police chief thought he was talking to the executive director and that I was the admin. 
And he kept talking to the facilities guy and the facilities guy kept looking at me like about decisions about what to do. And I would say, well, I think this is how we should do it. You know, and then the guy would answer to the other. And then finally, my facilities person said, do you, you know, like that Joanne is the head of the company, right? And the policeman went, oh, oh, I just thought, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Like you really could see that he thought I was the secretary of the other guy. Okay. (laughs) So then you know, whatever. But, but right there, I broke down his biases a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. This short, somewhat older, chubby white woman is, is the head of this company, not this tall white guy who is what you automatically assume. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's just by living by example and, and asking the question, why did you think that, mm-hmm. you know, question it? Why did you think that? Yeah. So, you know, I guess I would just say really everyone really needs to stop generalizing about everything, you know, even about white people, even about whatever it is, those kinds of thoughts in your head that all white people X, all people from Minnesota Y, there is no such thing. If we can get to a point where leaders are really pushing their employees to question those biases together, the women just can't do it. We failed. We failed for a half of a century as of working forever, but in particular, the last half century where we've been pushing for equity, we have failed at doing it by ourselves. We really need everybody to do it. Absolutely. Can't agree more. And I think now is the time to act. We can go on and on with you, Joanne. Thank you for your wonderful insights today. And thank you again for joining us in this episode. So thank you, Joanne, for giving us this perspective today and raising awareness on this issue. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. Thank you to Dr. Rudy Tenzi for providing us with the music for our intro. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also visit our website at sciencerehash.com. We would also like to thank all the members of Science Rehash who contributed their time in making Science Rehash possible. This includes our writers, Madura Lolikar and Kara Brenner, our marketing director, Carla Diavanzo, our sound editors, Tavi Pollard, Jared Warsoff, and Sophia Nastri, our assistant, Rebecca Solison, our creative director, Emma Brand, our producer, Shuang Zhang, and our business development director, Vichy Lo. Our show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and recommend our podcast to your friends and send us your comments and feedback. Thanks for listening.